Hello and welcome back. In this week's podcast, we will be looking at Spyfall Episode 2. Hello and welcome back to Cloisterbell, a weekly Doctor Who podcast hosted by Liam and Rob. Hello, I'm Liam, and the other chap you will be hearing from shortly is Rob. Just a warning from the beginning that this will be a review of the story Spyfall with spoilers. So if you have yet to watch the story and do not want it spoiled, I recommend you return to the podcast after you have enjoyed both episodes 1 and 2. Thanks. Well, Rob, permission to speak? Yeah? Uh, Are you asking for permission or telling? No, no, telling. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) I think it's a bit late for that. You've already started talking. <laughs> I don't need permission. I talk too much anyway. How's it going? It's good. Yep, just watched Spy 4 Part 2. Have you? <laughs> no, I haven't. Yeah. I'm just going to blag my way through this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I know she said that quite carefully. I'd be, I'd be keep on call, accidentally calling this Skyfall. Don't know why. Anyway, great, that's good. Um, so, one thing that we started um, last week, and we're carrying on this week to see whether it catches on and if it's a good idea or not, is the beginning of the trivia question, where um, each one of us will ask a question. We don't know what the other person's going to ask, and then we will see if we can come up with the answer later on after we've reviewed the episode. Um, do you want to go first with your question? Okay, uh, my question is... Who did Misty last kill on a plane? Oh, that's a very good question. I think I know the answer. But we'll uh, we'll see. It's a good one. My trivia question is, in the televised series... I'll just put that in just to cover ourselves. uh, In the televised series, who do we see as the very first victim of the tissue compression eliminator? So going way back. That might be be a bit ridiculously tough. Um... Hopefully not. So, so just a quick plot synopsis of the previous episode. Intelligent agents from around the world are being killed by hitherto unknown aliens who have the ability to transcend all matter and rewrite the DNA of their victims into something alien. To help investigate, MI6 call in the TARDIS crew. Investigating, they are led to Daniel Barton, the powerful and intelligent CAO of search engine media company Vol. It later transpires through the skills of Yaz and Ryan that Barton is only 93% human and in league with the aliens. Yaz is also temporarily transported to a strange haunted hinterland before being reunited with the Doctor. The TARDIS crew meet up with a former MI6 operative, O, who was tasked with monitoring extraterrestrial activities. All five then chase Barton leading to his private jet. When on board and in flight, O reveals he is actually the master having been in control of Barton and the aliens the whole time. Barton disappears from the pilot's seat, leaving a bomb in his place. As the device detonates, the Master escapes while the Doctor is transported to the same environment Yaz was in earlier, leaving her companions in the falling jet. Of course, we had a few unanswered questions at the end of Part 1. What happened to Barton? Mm -hmm. That was, of course, well, it wasn't explained, but it was revealed that he was alive. Yes, yep, that's true. Uh, but before we, we crack on with the main thing, because uh, it took pretty much everyone by surprise, obviously including ourselves, that the Master was returning into the, uh, back to the series. And that really um, 
the reaction that has received from from us. I mean, because we were absolutely thrilled, and you know, right mm. across the board, everyone's been really excited. So one thing that we mentioned in the previous podcast was looking at the possibility of what our top three master reveals are. So Rob and I have compiled a list of those. So before we get into the review of episode two of Spyfall, this is our top three favourite master reveals from previous stories. Um, so do you want to start with your number three? Yeah, thanks. In at number three for me is the Spymaster. Oh, so it's uh, straight in there. Yeah. It doesn't offer anything majorly kind of paradigm changing in um, master reveals, but um, it was full of energy. It's a refreshing take on the character. Um, yes, it does abandon the development we've had with Missy, but we can talk about that later. But a return of the psychotic element was kind of welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what, what was your number three? Well, just to comment on that, because. Uh, the Spymaster uh, hasn't made my list, but I, I was really toying with it. It almost got in, uh, but I was thinking because it's quite recent, um, I don't know whether I'm whether it you know later on down. Well, yeah, sort of, and I wanted to give the opportunity to talk about previous uh, reveals. Um, my third one is probably going to have a lot of people going, "What the hell? That's just." In at number three for me is the King's Demons, um, where up until this point you've had Anthony Ainley disguise himself as a um, well, he's the actor obviously, but the master disguised himself as a as a, a French nobleman in the court of King John, and it's just, it's it's really quite obvious that it's Anthony Ainley putting on quite a remarkable French accent, but I don't I don't mind. Uh, what what I love about uh, this reveal is just how it's just tremendously good fun. You have a sword fight, uh, which is quite nice. We don't get uh, enough of those, I think. So we have a, a decent sword fight, uh, which is entertaining enough. And we have the reveal, which comes with this absolutely fantastic um, piece of music. And then the doctor revealing, uh, the master revealing the tissue compression eliminator. The doctor looking shocked and going, so you escaped from Zarephas. And then just that wonderful line of going, well, my dear Doctor, you have been naive. It's just... There's just this entertaining camp quality about it, which I just find tremendously good fun, and I can't help but love it. Well, that's really good. I didn't consider um, anything like that. I was just thinking of um, first Master Reveals. Ah, right, okay. But, yeah, that's good. I like it. <laughs> In at number two for me is another Modern Who one. It's Missy. Because this was a, a first for the show, you know, female master. And it kind of was also a precursor to the 13th Doctor in that respect. There was a lot of uncertainty about who she actually was for a moment as well, which was exciting. Mm-hmm. When Peter Capaldi's Doctor was wondering who actually is she. But um, it was an exciting moment. Yeah, that is really good. Um, because again... Missy hasn't made quite made my list, but she did come in very close, and uh, I was toying between that reveal, and I think it's in the episode "The Lie of the Land," um, so the, the P- Peter Capaldi episode where uh, they actually open the vault, and she and Bill encounter Missy, and I just love that whole interaction that they have. Um, there's a lot of humour, there's a lot of drama and atmosphere, so that almost made my list. So yeah, I very nearly included Missy. So, for my list, um, what I've put in at 
put in as number one could be reversed with number two. I was it, it took me ages to get the list, but anyway, my number two is the very first reveal, which is way back in 1971, the Terror of the Autons. This is introducing the master for the very first time in the show, and I just think it's great. It's at a circus. It's a place of family entertainment. We have the master's TARDIS land, and already there's a difference between you know, the fact that the TARDIS, uh, the master's TARDIS chameleon circuit works. Um, He's clearly done his research with who he encounters. He's very intimidating. We've got the hypnotism. It's just really chilling. I just think it's a, a great... Everything that you sort of need to know about the Master is all there in those, in those first few moments. And I still think it holds up very well. Yeah, I love that scene where he just arrives in the circus. <laughs> just dematerializes in a big van. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see that spinning down the vortex. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Or just cruising down, gently. Yeah. <laughs> Big massive horse box, yeah. Another one, um, at number one for me, it's another modern one. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd known we were looking at <laughs> kind of just generic master reveals <laughs> during <laughs> the run. But never mind, um, I've went for the Jacoby master. Not the animated one, <laughs> the war master. Oh, okay. Oh, fantastic, because that's what I put in at number one as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it's of course a really exciting reveal. It's the Master's first appearance in the Revived series. Mm-hmm. So that kind of has a lot of impact as a viewer. It's such a massive shame that we didn't get more of him. I know he does have his own show on audio, uh, but you never know, we might see him back on screen one day. Yeah, because you've got uh, J- Derek Jacobi, who is regarded as one of the best actors Britain has ever produced, and he is really brilliant. And Utopia, up until that point, has been you know a fairly decent story, but then it's su- but then it suddenly turns itself on its head, and then you've got this absolutely fantastic moment, and it's got everything in there. So I think for modern audiences who didn't know who the Master was, it's got a lot of drama already, and with all the tension and the acting, the direction, the music, everything that's in there, you're aware that, that, that something of real dramatic importance is about to happen. And Derek, and you've got this whole thing tying in with a chameleon arch, which had been in, you know, in a, um, a story pr- prior to the series. And, you know, we got a couple of clips of that thrown in. And the drama just builds and builds and builds. And then for fans such as ourselves, because I remember being really excited by this, because you got that sense of what was happening, and then you got voice clips from, you know, you got Anthony Ainley, Anthony Ainley's laughter, um, a line of dialogue from from Roger Delgado. It's it, yeah, it's just it's really exciting. It's brilliant. Yeah, and we must have had him for a matter of minutes. <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah. What a shame. Yeah, it is a shame. It, it's it's only uh, only for a couple of minutes, but he makes an impact within that couple of minutes. Yeah, such a different performance to um, the Professor Yana stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, totally. And the, uh, just even the look in his eyes, he just looks mm. completely evil. So Derek Jacobi yeah. does a brilliant job. So great, now that we've got that out of the way, so now on to episode two of Spyfall. So in part two of this epic spy thriller, a terrifying plan to destroy humanity is about to reach fruition. Can the Doctor and her friends escape multiple traps and defeat a deadly enemy? So in terms of cast and crew, obviously we have Jodie Whittaker playing the Doctor, Bradley Walsh uh, playing Graham O'Brien, Mandip Gill playing Yasmin Khan, Tosin Cole playing Ryan Sinclair, Sasha Dewan playing the Master, uh, Lenny Henry coming back this week again to continue playing Daniel Barton, 
And we have a couple of new um, major characters. Uh, Sylvie Briggs playing Ada Lovelace. And Aurora Marion playing Noir Khan. Uh, Chris Chibnall, as is last week, is the writer of this episode. Um, the director for this week was Lee Haven Jones, replacing James Magnus Stone. This is the first uh, episode of Doctor Who to, bar- to be directed by Jones, but uh, he's also directed later episodes in the series. And the cinematographer, last week it was Catherine Goldschmidt, uh, this week it was Ed Moore. Again, this is his first uh, Doctor Who, and he'll also be involved in later episodes in the series. I always had a feeling that um, Lenny Henry and Stephen Fry would return for the second episode, but of course Stephen Fry didn't. No, no, he was uh, he was well and truly killed in the previous episode. It was sort of interesting because you got uh, a, you know the special guest star of Steve, you know Stephen Fry who's wanted to appear in the series for ages, and he does, and he's all in it for five minutes, and it seems a bit of a shame. He did, you know, he played that part well, um, and. IMDB ha- did have Stephen Fry listed as appearing in episode two, so I thought maybe there's a possibility that you know somehow we came back. But no, yeah, no Stephen Fry this week, unfortunately. No, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> um, the title for this episode, Spyfall Part Two, mm-hmm. does it? Do you think it deserves that title? Because this this episode has a different director, and I do love this episode, but it has a different energy to the first, doesn't it? I mean, you you can you can you can have serialized drama mm-hmm. without calling things part one and two, can't you? Yeah, that's true. Um, I suppose it's given the fact that you know you've got Barton. Uh, well, it, there are some parts of the plot which are obviously a direct continuation. Yes. So all the stuff to do with Barton is there, and you've still got espionage taking place, and people on the run, and there is that there is that thriller element. But there's no Bond theme, is there? running through no no that no that's true um but it is sort of espionage of a, of a different kind but yeah it, it does have it doesn't feel jarring but you are right it does have a completely different tone and feel to to last week well uh it's still the same week uh <laughs> this part one's episode it's it, um it does have a different tone and feel to part one but it doesn't feel jarring do you think had the ed this two-parter as a feature length episode it would have just been complete overkill. It would have been too long. It would have been over two hours long, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, it would have. Um, uh, possibly, I'm not sure. I mean, the thing because I don't, I don't mind the title "Spyfall," but it does have that feel of it was a working title that somehow stuck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, it's fine. I mean, because uh, we sort of hinted at it before, but one of the things that uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're probably both in agreement with this was that this was a very fast-paced episode. Um, didn't sort of let up, but in a in a good way. Uh, it was very well paced, but it went at quite a good lick, and a lot happens. I mean, because it was over an hour again, but it didn't didn't feel like it dragged at all. Uh, and it felt like you know there was there was things constantly happening and things that were constantly engaging. So at the very beginning, um, you know, you've got the the Doctor in in the lonely place, uh, and we establish what that actually is quite relatively quickly, which is that that place is actually the aliens' home world. Um, mm-hmm. And then bizarrely, uh, she, I think this took everyone by surprise, not least the Doctor, but actually the, she wasn't alone. There was another There was another person there. Yeah. Um, and she ends up meeting the real historical figure, 
Ada Lovelace. And I thought that was really well done. And at the same time, that's all going on because it cuts between that and the companions escaping the crashing plane, um, which I thought was handled really well. What what were your thoughts with how that played out? With the plane? Mm. It was a very um, a very easy time travel cheat. Um, it was nothing. It was nothing clever on the companions' part. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of hoped it was handled a bit differently, but mm, it's kind of what I was expecting. Yeah, I was as well. I, I know what you mean. I mean, I, I liked how it was uh, how it was revealed, but there was a part of me that went. Uh, it would have been quite interesting had um, something a bit more. Um, a bit more cleverer had been used, if you like. As you say, it did feel a bit of a cheat, but at the same time, I didn't really mind it. Uh, and it was clearly going to be a sort of like a timey-wimey thing where the Doctor hasn't done it yet. And then uh, at the end of the episode, she would then have to go back to make sure that she helped them escape the, the crushing airplane. I feel like had the Doctor been in that situation, she would have just thought her way out of it. You know, mm-hmm. there would have been possibly been a solution. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the the strengths of the companions um, we need. I think they need a bit more of a push. Yes, I agree with that. As I said, because I, I quite liked how how it was done. I didn't mind it too much, but at the same time, I was sort of mm, it would have been quite nice if something a bit more, uh, something of a bit more ingenuity had been used. Um, because then what happens is um, we'll get back to the doctor in a moment. But in terms of the companions, so they escape the crashing airplane, and then uh, because. Barton is aware that they have escaped, as is the, as is the master is aware, but Barton is as well, and he puts things in place where it forces the companions to be on the run, which sort of reminded me a bit of um, what happened in the Sound of Drums when the master makes uh, the Doctor, Captain Jack, and Martha forced to be on the run. It's very reminiscent. It even had um, just like Martha, it had Yasmin calling home. And they're all on the news, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, the difference there was, I felt that back with the sound of... Yeah, I agree, it is. it was very reminiscent. Uh, whereas with the sound of drums, it felt like it furthered the plot a bit. Really what ends up happening with the companions is they're on the run, and it doesn't really further the plot. Um, no. well, you know, uh, all the plot is centred around the Doctor and what's happening with her and the Master. Uh, and then the companions are sort of sidelined and we cut back to them because they're they're on the run and they have to be in hiding and so on. Having said that though, even though it doesn't really further the pl- what happens to them doesn't really further the plot, I think nonetheless the way that they're handled uh, in what they do what we see them do is quite well done. Because when I was watching the episode, I wasn't I wasn't really aware that what's going on was sort of like surp- surplus to requirements. It was just tremendous fun. And actually, it helps a good... It tonally helped the episode because what's happening to the Doctor is, you know, is very serious. And even though there's moments of levity there, um, there's an awful lot going on. Um, So the the companions with them being in the run and it's all rather fun. And finally, you know, we do get them to see the laser shoes, which which was quite good. And um, the rocket cufflinks. Um, so, so we do get to see those gadget use, uh, which was which was quite nice. So there's a lot, So even though it doesn't further the plot, um, nonetheless, I did think it was sort of done well, and it was it was quite good fun. D- do you agree or? 
Yes, yeah. Um, I think it was good. To, we talk about character dynamics sometimes because the group always gets split up mm-hmm. uh, in one way or another. And in this instance, we had Yaz, Ryan and Graham on their own. And the three of them are in frame a lot together. Mm-hmm. So it's really showcasing the, um, them as like a trio. And I think um, that's possibly what we've been lacking in Series 11. Um, we haven't got to see the, them on their own, possibly. Yeah, I agree with that. So I think, uh, so in that respect, Chris Chibnall has has done a good job in, even though, as we said, we don't, it doesn't further the plot, but it is, it is good, nice. It, it does actually provide some character development. And the way that the actors perform that is really quite nice. And, as you, and you actually made a good point. Um, uh, Lee Haven Jones, the director, makes a point of keeping them tight in a lot of shots so you're seeing them actually together in the set so yeah that it's um you know it's it's thoughtful in terms of the way it's directed as well so yeah that was good yeah like as a team it's like they're all integral yeah yeah but yeah yeah, yeah. Pretty cool. um this is actually the first episode i believe to have a pre-title scene it was just a recap but nonetheless mm-hmm. I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure in chibnall's era it's the first one do you think Yes, I think it is. If the, if the, if there has been another one, I can't. I can't, it's. Uh, I can't. I can't really remember. Um, but yeah, I, th- I, th- I think you're right. Actually, yeah. So um, going back to to the, the doctor, because everything is really centered around uh, what happens to her. So as we said, um, she ends up encountering Ada Lovelace, uh, which seems quite fortuitous, and manages to es- escape the the aliens' homeland um, th- through Ada. And arrives in 19th century London. And so the, the vast majority of the episode uh, is uh, skips between... Well, it doesn't skip, but it, um, we have 19th century London. And then later on we have 20th century Paris, um, 1943, World War II. Um, and I really liked uh, these settings. I thought they were, the, the, they were very evocative. And they were used very well, and I thought the production values and again the direction and the cinematography and everything was really rather good. And we and we get we get to see more of the master and some more of D- D- Darwin's uh, performance of that role. And he compared to the moment when he's revealed in episode one, where obviously he's very he's very excited and there's a lot of sort of like evil glee because finally he's able to reveal himself. Um, so, but here he he it's it's a lot more calmer and he feels more of a threat, and actually we see the tissue compression eliminator being used. There's a there's been a problem that um I think Stephen Moffat wanted to address that the master doesn't seem enough as a threat as he should be, mm-hmm. and in this case he really is because he's killing people left right and centre. So it's quite it's quite terrifying. It's quite powerful. Do you agree with the level of killing that was going on here? I don't mean do you agree with killing, but I mean <laughs> in this um, in this portrayal of the master. Yes, uh, the reason being is because you know he is a threat, and you've got to take him seriously. And you know he he waltz in and he murders two people. That's going to grab your attention, and it, it it raises the stakes, and it it makes the master a threat. And you you know you've got you as the audience have got to take him seriously. 
uh, and then and obviously the, the doctor therefore has to take him seriously as as well um given... also had the doctor submit to him at his request yeah that's true i loved how that was done um that whole interaction i loved th- i mean throughout the entire episode i loved how because I, I have always liked uh, Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor from the off. But there was something about... The, 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 there are moments in previous uh, episodes, and this uh, it was certainly the case in this one, when, when she is... Con- you know, when... She, uh, as an actor, is made to confront um, something of, of serious nature. That's, that's when she seems to really up her game. I, 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 that sounds like I'm damning her with frank praise, because... She she has been consistently good from from the very beginning in terms of her, uh, in terms of her performance, but there was something there are certain moments and this is one of them where she's you know she, she's confronted with a master, and the way that uh, Darren and Whitaker uh, play that part the way that you know she she does submit uh, to the master but she's you know she clearly doesn't want to do it, and they both play that scene very very well and there was a lot of tension between them. Yeah, um, and of course, she doesn't um, let her own ego take over. There's lives at stake. Of yeah. course, mm-hmm. she's gonna. Of course, she's gonna yield. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For the sake of just, uh, for the sake of just kneeling, yeah, and say, say, you know, saying he's the master. And again, this was because the whole the way that uh, Dewan plays that scene. You know, when she's you know, call me by my name, master, and he keeps on going, I can't hear you. Um, there are different ways to to play that. Um. Say, for example, if uh, John Sim was playing that, I think he would get more of the sort of um, sort of the manic child-like yeah, performance like, of like He would have screamed it. Yeah, uh, that sort of thing. But uh, he plays it in a very... Uh, in a much more serious uh, way. And it, it carries a lot more gravitas, I think, as a result of that. I just thought it was great. And you see that contained throughout. And to answer your question again, um, I don't want to leap too far ahead, but given the fact that later on, what we find out what the master has done uh, at the very end of the episode, uh, it makes sense in terms of the fact he just waltzes into a room, kills two people, th- th- uh, makes everyone scared, then just kills someone else for the sake of it. Um, it does. It does seem to tie in with his character an awful lot. Yeah, it, all of a sudden after watching this episode, a lot makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. We um back at the beginning, if we can rewind a little bit, um, when the Doctor is in this other realm, she um says it could be um synapsis because we said it looked like synaptic pathways, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. And of course, um, we realise that by the end of this episode, the whole theme of that is using um humans as computers. Mm-hmm. Um, which is um, clearly the case here. Yeah, and I thought that was a, that was a really really good um, idea, and it was hinted at in the previous episode. But obviously, the um, the satirical elements of this story really come to the front of the whole thing to do with um, the amount of information that we readily give with regards to um, uh, social media and tech in general. Because I mean, it was because funny enough, we didn't mention it in the previous podcast. I think probably because we thought it was too glaringly obvious. But Vore is obviously Google. Yes, uh, we thought it was the Vord. <laughs> well, no, we th- we thought well. 
<laughs> no, we thought the alien threat was the Vord. What was really funny was uh, a, lo- a lot of... Because um, we did that, and we, I think we were sort of like being semi-jokey because we thought... You Although could... they, did, they, they did say they took this form because it amuses them, and who's not amused by wetsuits and flippers? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we, I thought we just thought it was hysterical. Imagine if they brought those uh, villains back uh, from a from a not-so-good 1964 story. But funny enough, we weren't the only ones who made that. Um, a lot of people were on on, on Twitter basically going, it's the board. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it was quite a few people. I think so, some people were being serious, and I think a lot of people, you know, other people were just, like, doing it like they were having a laugh. There yeah. was a part of me when it was like, oh, it's not the Vord. I wish it was. Um, but, yeah, the, um, you know, uh, Vor was obviously the, a representation of Google. Um, so so that was quite good. And then, obviously, put through this mad science fiction uh, twist on it, which is um, through our tech we all get uploaded. Uh, and I quite like the idea of, um, you know, the human brain being, I mean, it, there is scientific truth to it, but I liked how uh, this story touched on it, which is, you know, the human brain has a lot more p- power and capacity and human DNA than that of a computer. So, yeah. And it turns out Barton wasn't um, part alien, but well, he wasn't descended from one. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, Sort of like a testing ground. He, yeah, he was kind of um, augmented, reformatted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I know, again, we, we there's a lot more to discuss, but uh, just skipping ahead because we're talking about Barton. So obviously the, the whole plan, uh, the Doctor defeats the plan, so Barton is defeated, but he just walks off. Surely this can't be the last we see of Barton. Do you think? It's a shame we didn't see the fallout from that because he would have just been... Um, just defeated there wouldn't he yeah but no i mean that's what that's what i mean it seemed because this would obviously have a huge the, the impact of this would be huge um it's not something you can easily brush into the carpet and i can't see that one scene where um yaz's father just brushes see conspiracy theories whatever that can't just be the explanation of it i i'd be i'd be very surprised if um that's the last we see of barton i mean having said that though i remember when we were reviewing series 11 and we looked at the uh, the episode Rosa, and the villain in that story, and then just disappears. Uh, and I, I think we both made the same point. We're going well, that can't be the last we see of him. And the guy in um, Arachnids in the UK. Oh yes, um, the the Trump like character, the uh, yeah. American dude. Yeah. Uh, maybe he'll come back as president. <laughs> maybe, but um, if. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not arguing that the the series is crying out for um, another Barton-led episode. But I haven't. I, I I feel that there is something that can still that can still be done with that character. And I'd be surprised if he doesn't come back. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's Chibnall's um, Chibnall's way. You know, he doesn't like to provide closure. I just can't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe. So Ada Lovelace. Um, that sparked something in my mind as soon as we found out who she was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's to do with a rumour that's been going around for a while. Um, and the Doctor and Ada share two degrees of separation. And that links to a rumour for an appearance in this series by someone. 
I don't know if I can go into rumours on the podcast. Should we do it after the credits? Yes, because I think I know exactly what you're hinting at. Um, so, listeners, if you're wanting a bit more information on this, about you know these rumours, because I think I know exactly what Rob is hinting at, am I right in saying that this could potentially uh, contradict a big Finnish ad- adventure? Yes. Right, okay. Um, so Also, the, or, or they could... Right, no, we'll talk about it later. Yeah, we'll yeah. talk about it later. Um, so if you want further information on that, um, stick, um, stick around to after the credits, uh, where we're talking about more potential spoilers uh, with regards to the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we'll talk about that later. Uh, but yes, uh, it was quite... So Ada Lovelace, as I said, uh, is a real historical figure. She was an English mathematician and writer... Uh, and as is explained in the episode, uh, she did become one of the first ever computer programmers. So she is a very important uh, historical figure in scientific and technological development. And makes a bloody good companion, I thought, here. Um, there was a part, because she works perfectly well with them in the episode, but I think it's one of those things where uh, when it's done so well, you've got, oh, I wouldn't mind if Ada Lovelace became a, a bit of a companion for the Doctor. Yeah. It reminds me of one of my favourite bits in the episode when Graham says, who are they and are we being replaced? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that other. <laughs> Which was great. Yeah, that was funny. It was good. We got to see the Master's TARDIS, although we've seen it before, inside and out, but this time we saw it outside in the vortex and then we saw inside with a giant kind of cube <laughs> as the central console, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which I quite liked. I loved because I actually thought because it could have easily looked um, a bit ridiculous. I mean, this is the thing that, that sometimes there's the, the things about Doctor Who which is absolutely ridiculous, but somehow manages to pull off. And yeah. um, seeing a, a big sort of um, bungalow <laughs> spinning through the time vortex, but it, but it looks good. And I, I was a little bit disappointed. It was the, it was still the bungalow inside. <laughs> I was a bit as well, but I've got a sneaking suspicion that we we may see something um, grandiose uh, later on. Uh, Oh, and what has the Doctor done with that TARDIS? Yes, that's true. And does the Master use the same TARDIS, do you think? Because he quite often hasn't had it. Yeah. Um, We do know that in in the final, final moments of John Sim... We know that he had his TARDIS, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Is that the first mention of the Master's TARDIS in the new era? I think so. Yeah, th- yeah, I think it is. Um, we just assumed that he had one somewhere. Uh, probably left on the, what was it? Uh, the coast of the Silver Devastation. But by that point, you know, he's used the Chameleon Arch. So whether at some point he, he, he goes back to the Silver Devastation and grabs his TARDIS, I don't know. Um... But yes, so um, we meet Ada, Ada Lovelace. There is a uh, there's a moment between uh, the Doctor and the Master. Innocent people are killed, uh, but the uh, the Master is, is temporarily uh, defeated. Uh, they go on the run and hiding. The Doctor starts to start slowly putting pieces back together again, but only just. Um, she tries to make an attempt of coming back to the twenty first century, um, but what ends up happening? is they arrive, she and Ada Lovelace arrive in Paris 1943. And it's quickly established that the Master is, through the use of his TARDIS, is able to uh, trace the Doctor. And the Doctor and Ada encounter Noah Khan. Again, another um, 
real historical figure. She was the first, as explained in the episode, she's the first woman wireless operator to be sent from Britain into occupied France. Uh, she was a spy, an incredibly brave one. Um, and that was a, a, a another um, great pairing, and she was a great character. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I wonder if we'll get to see the Doctor with different companions ever in in um, Jodie Whittier's time. Uh, possibly. I mean, because uh, obviously it's been done in this episode, and I think it was done really rather well, and it was quite uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I found it sort of really engaging. And what ends up happening in uh, Paris is through... Um, the Doctor ends up meeting the Master, who's working with the Nazis. Uh, and things start to get revealed, not just in relation to this story, but what looks like will be um, a story arc for the series. What will be, sorry? Well, so we find out uh, a bit about uh, the aliens that the Master has been working with, that he isn't fully in control of them, but what he plans to do is effectively use the aliens to essentially massacre the whole of mankind, and then he will then kill the aliens. Um, so that that's his plan. But we then find out that he had visited Gallifrey. Oh, yes. And it's... it's oh, and we get a reference to Logopolis uh, in this story. The whole thing about, you know, because the, they're at the top of the Eiffel Tower. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Doctor makes a reference to Jodrell Bank, which is how the, the fourth Doctor um, dies. And then the Master goes, did I ever apologise for that? And she goes, no, and went, good. Which I thought was just, <laughs> which I thought was, you know, uh, quite nice because it, it reveals, you know, it's a, in a, it's a nice little continuity reference uh, for fans to get and, you know, adds a bit more to, to the Master. Yeah. Um, but I thought, again, this, w- this was another uh, fantastic scene uh, between the two characters and the two actors and it was tremendous I thought oh yeah I think in this episode I was kind of longing for just dialogue between them mm-hmm. um, and we did get that I, um, I mean for some people that might have kind of killed the energy you know compared <laughs> to last week um, but no it's exactly what I wanted yeah that's the kind of development we need isn't it yeah yeah, uh, moments of um, character development and drama, and uh, I just thought this was really, really interesting because, again, as I said, it was it was great to see them in terms of uh, the actors and their characters, and you know more plot is revealed in terms of the story, but there's a lot more going on with um, the whole thing to do with Gallifrey, but we'll get onto that in a uh, in a bit. Yeah, and of course, um, when they're on top of the Eiffel Tower, the master doesn't have an audience, mm-hmm. so. He does behave a lot differently. Yes, yeah, yeah. Around the Doctor, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, the Silver Lady, which is the little mannequin in the box. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the origin of that, do we assume the Master placed that um, in the 19th century? After forming an alliance? Yes, I think so. I think that was... Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because it's revealed that these aliens have have been on uh, have been on Earth uh, for a lot of time, but the thing is, um, due to their very nature, they can't they can't last here very long. Um, so the master has put things in place to deal with that, um, uh, because it's not only just going to because uh, we found out in the previous episode that the the maps of Earth because there were there were many of them. It's it's the same Earth, but basically it's 
these aliens plan to attack mankind uh, basically through history. Yes, and I almost mentioned that last week, um, different eras, not parallel worlds. Yes, you did, yeah, yeah. Did I, did I mention it? Uh, I certainly remember you saying it whether it oh. got edited out of the podcast or not sure, but yes, <laughs> I can vouch to uh, dear listeners that he did say that, so Rob was on the ball. Uh, he, he predicted that. Um, so it didn't bother me so much when they were in the 19th century, but when they went to Paris in 1943, the master tracks her again. Um, how do you think he's tracking her? Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe he's able to pick up sort of like some sort of residual energy from her. Yeah. Of course, he does have his TARDIS, so he could be using that. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I think it's uh, he's definitely using his TARDIS. How he's able to specifically pinpoint uh, the Doctor, I suppose, through her explanation, maybe he's able to pick up the Artron energy, for, you know, popping around. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I didn't overlook the fact that Ada was in her own future in a kind of a war-torn Paris. Mm-hmm. And, she, and she, um, she witnesses that and reacts to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, again, I thought was, uh, was a good moment. Because, of course, it's, it's just history to us. You know, it's something we t- take for granted. But um, to witness that, it's like the end of the world, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, to, to be encountered, uh, to see war raging out in such a way, uh, on, on such a scale, is obviously horrific. And then on top of that, to, to find out that um, it it's not the first time this has happened, um, and it's happening again on a much larger, horrifying scale. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, to put ourselves in her shoes, it's, it's like a terrifying thought to think it could happen again, even if it's after our lifetime. Mm-hmm. It's not a nice thought, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> um, no, and again, uh, just stating the obvious, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 but uh, you know, it's right to say. And um, what's sort of interesting because obviously the, the Doctor is encountering Noah Khan in that, in that time period, um, and this is set in nineteen forty three, and obviously the Doctor has to leave her in that time period. Noah Khan died on the thirteenth of September, nineteen forty four. Having been having been betrayed, and she was executed. Ah, okay. Um, I just thought I just thought I'd mention that. Um, just to depress you even further. But, oh. yeah. Of course, the doctor wipes her memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we've seen this before with Donna. But it's established that you know he has a, he, the doctor does have that ability. In fact, um, we see the contact. <laughs> we didn't get the cool sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, I thought that was really good. Um, so the doctor using Morse code to uh, Morse code to uh, attract the attention of the doc, um, uh, the master using the beats. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I just had to do it. It's very catchy. <laughs> um, and that starts off the th- this really great moment that we talked about before. So that they they start communicating through con- you know through mentally contact. Yeah. And and with the master using the TCE, mm. um, the doctor says, "Well, I can go classic too, or something like that, doesn't she?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, she does. Yeah. She's going way back to well, actually, because uh, we have reviewed um, in previous podcasts, we have reviewed uh, the three doctors, uh, the five doctors, and 
dimensions and time and something that we we cottoned on to those is that in those stories i think there's another one as well uh day of the doctor they all they all have in their own different ways but they have these moments where there's mental contact so with gallifrey being burnt he does reveal that to the doctor and she doesn't quite believe him does she initially um I i had a moment of trying to interpret that scene where i thought is he a past master who doesn't know Gallifrey was saved. Yeah, I mean, because really, all what's established in this scene is that he is a master after Antony Ainley's, with the reference to Logopolis. Yes. Other than that, uh, there's there's nothing else to specifically tie him into a specific time period. You know, and there's, and there's at the moment, there's no reason to suggest specifically... I mean, I, I'm not particularly fussed if, it was, uh, if it's revealed he, he is after Missy, or what have yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, but there's nothing to us. Uh, there's nothing to say that he, you know, he's a master pre John Sims, for example. Yeah, but just with um, with Jodie's reaction when she smiled, I thought she was kind of realizing, oh, he doesn't know it was saved. Mm-hmm. But no, a moment later, I thought, oh, well, of course that's not the case. Um, I mean, he must be aware that. But having said that, though, he is aware that Gallifrey was in this pocket dimension. And that, oh, that, and that that's is a bit of a confusing thing, yeah. Yeah, because that is tied up with the the time war and, and everything like that. So he must be aware of it. Of course, in Hellbent, we find out that um, Gallifrey is no longer in the pocket dimension, but it is returned to the main universe, but at the end of the universe. Oh, yes. Hi- hiding away. Back in the universe, but at the, at the final moments, mm. almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 I think you're right. Yes. But when the 13th Doctor in Spy 4 Part 2 goes there, we see her going through the vortex, and then we see another kind of visual, don't we? Like, she's breaking through to yeah. somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so is this Chris Tribunal's way of saying that hell-bent didn't happen? Uh, let's hope so. Do we trust a man that doesn't like Trail of the Time Lord? Oh yeah, that's a good point. It's really funny uh, when *Trial of a Time Lord* came out on DVD all those years ago. Uh, I had no idea who Chris Chibnall was, and when it came to that uh, section of open air that they had with, which was the Liverpool Doctor Who Appreciation Society, there's one. There was one guy on there who uh, has glasses and basically says that you know that the show isn't up to much. <laughs> I don't know what it is. He's got this smug look on his face, and he just, oh, I just want to go. Oh, I want to punch that guy. Uh, and that's Chris Tribunal. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so on a weekly basis, you're going to be thinking that again now, aren't you? I yeah. really want to punch that guy. I really want to punch that guy. Um, <laughs> sadly, I think there's a lot of Doctor Who fans who think that, but not for... anyway. Um, I was aware of him back in 2006 um, because, of course, he was the screenwriter for Torchwood. Um, so I remember watching a few YouTube videos from fans moaning about him like oh, he shouldn't be writing for Doctor Who fans. <laughs> <laughs> all right they were no I think um oh because funny enough we're in 2020 which was the year um oh what's that Matt Smith Silurian story called The Hungry Earth The Hungry Earth because that was set in 2020 so this is the year of The Hungry Earth ah. although um time keeps getting retconned doesn't it <laughs> yeah like um how I like how Chibnall has, or rather Stephen Moffat, Stephen Moffat possibly, um, they've retconned all alien invasions, knowledge of aliens, no one knows who the Daleks are anymore. Yeah. Um, 
But in this episode, we've had a global <laughs> event of like phones grabbing onto people <laughs> with electricity. Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. They've retconned all silly global events and now they just put another one in. <laughs> I can see why they do it. You can see why they do it though. So yes, the laser shoes did get a, did get a um, chance to shine. Yeah. I love that one. He was like, dance, Graham, dance. <laughs> yeah, that was great. And uh, Bradley Walsh playing that part really well. And uh, yeah, that was tremendous fun. I like. I hope he keeps the shoes. <laughs> well, he'd be daft to get rid of them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, laser shoes. Yeah, he needs to keep those. So at this point, we're sort of uh, nearing the end of the episode and things are... Um, well, actually, there is one scene where um, it, it didn't need to be there, but I, I'm pleased it is because it adds a, a, something further to Barton. Um, he kidnaps his mother and kills her. Yes, I thought that was a strange thing. I thought maybe she was going to be... She was going to transcend and go into this other realm or something. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't get a hint of any resentment towards his mother, did we, in episode one? Uh, no, no, because there was, there was no reference to his family history or anything like well, that. Well, there, there was a bit, um, there was a bit of his character background. Yeah, yeah, there was a little bit, but it was, uh, um, I think that was just to establish, you know, uh, Yaz, uh, playing a journalist. Yeah. Uh, but it was strange, I guess, um, to service the plot, it showed us what was going to happen to everyone. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that's the extent of it. Yes, but in, in terms of his character, it, it did establish him as a threat. Because up until this point, really, all, you know, all what we're aware of him, you know, he, he runs this incredibly successful tech company. He, uh, he's, yes, he's a bad guy because he's working with the aliens and the master. But beyond that, there doesn't seem to be anything really specific that points him as a as a threat. Yeah. Uh, and then now it's established that he he's someone who's quite willing to murder his mother, uh, which is quite chilling and disturbing. Yeah. Um. So so so, so it adds. And adds a danger. Uh, 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 sees him as a potential threat because if he's willing to do that, then what what else is he willing to do? And then, as you yeah. said, that then goes into, because then he's given a speech informing everyone that they've got three minutes to live and then everything's sort of kicking off. Because it looks That's weird that because um he's given his speech and everyone's just kinda of sat there smiling and nodding, <laughs> you know? It's a bit odd. And then he sends the text out and everyone's like, Oh, I'll just check my phone <laughs> Well I suppose every you know, you got people smiling and nodding because he's he's you know, he's this big celebrity and he's in the same room as him, he's dressing them and he's talking about this. Although although what he's saying is a bit uh It's a bit weird. <laughs> Yeah, it's in a, reality, we'd just be like scratching my heads, looking at each other, saying, "What?" <laughs> we just, well, the very least, going, he's actually admitting that he he uses all our data, and that we this is appalling. Yeah, uh, so, so yeah, it was a bit, uh, it was a bit oddly uh, done, but yeah, it uh, yeah. it somehow worked. Do you think the aliens could return? Because um, we know that they've been planting sleeper agents. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't turn out to be Yaz, as we found out. She was just transported. Um, because of her Archon energy. Yeah. The same way Clyde Langer was in um, Death of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't have any... Yeah, we, we, there was no kind of duplicated characters in this story. Um, will there be any overhanging threat of the aliens returning? Um, 
I think possibly not. Yeah, that's how I read it. Um, the striking me as sort of like this will just be a one-off uh, because they were here, they posed a threat, and it was dealt with. And that that speech that um, the the doctor gives at the end um, seemed to wrap everything up because really they the aliens invasion was very much dependent on the technology that the master had gave and uh, had developed. But then the doctor explains that she ended up putting in sort of like it was a bit of the sort of like the curse of fatal death. I went back in time <laughs> to an even to an even earlier point, and I planted a um, a virus uh, in it. And then because that then deals with that, the the aliens otherwise can't remain in our dimensions for too long, so the threat isn't really there anymore. Funny enough. Earlier on, when we were doing that that list of our favorite ma- master reveals, and I did the whole uh, no, no, number three was the, the the King's Demons because during the Peter Davison era, there'd be um, you know you had Castrovalva, and then the master was trapped there, and then the next time we see him in Time Flight, it's sort of like you escape from Castrovalva. Why, yes, I did by one mighty bound, and then in the end of Time Flight, he's trapped in Zarafas, and then in the King's Demons, it's <laughs> you escape from Zarafas. Uh, it's the whole thing. And I felt like this was a sort of repeat because at the end of the this episode, the master is trapped in that, uh, in the alien's uh, home world. And I, I think it's safe to say that, you know, he will be coming back probably in the series finale, but we'll see. But when he comes back, I wonder if, you know, so you, I wonder if it'll play out exactly the same way. You know, you escape from such and such. Yes, I, I did. So. Now let's get on the plot. Yeah. <laughs> There's a part of me that wants that to happen because I just think it's I great. know, yeah. <laughs> no explanation, just just point out so you've escaped. Yeah. Yes, I have. Now let's crack on. <laughs> but you're right though, I remember that about Castrovalva. It seemed very final, you know, he's trapped there for eternity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and even the case with Missy, you know, she's killed. There's no there's no way to regenerate. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, now he's back. <laughs> <laughs> now he's back. Um, and I see that... So, because the Doctor was using the Master's TARDIS, uh, the Master was trapped for, for, for decades. And I see he, at the end of the uh, the episode, he seems to be digging... A, he's, he's wearing a completely new costume. And there's a bit, there's a bit of... It seems to be a mixture of 70s fashion and what the second Doctor wore. Ah, okay. I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> All right, okay. I'll have a look. Um, if you ever read... that's a bit that's that's a bit of cur- curse of fatal death here though, isn't it? Yeah, he's just spent he just spent seventy seven years getting back here. <laughs> <laughs> then he then he gets trapped in the other dimension. Yeah, yeah. So uh, for the curse of fatal death, he's uh, he he's trapped in the uh, the sewers of Tursurus, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and now he's be- he's just been trapped living through the twentieth century. Yes. And he hasn't aged, but he, like we know about Time Lords aging. Uh-huh. Well, he grew, could, he, grew they, bit, they, he grew a bit more of a beard. Yes. <laughs> but we do know that they can age or they can't age. Or we, we do know that they could reverse age. <laughs> well, that's the excuse with River. I thought that was wonderful of Stephen Moffat. Just, just a, a wonderful cheeky line to explain how, you know, the, the actress is getting older, but the way that she appears in the series because of all the time complexities. So, uh, yeah. With respect to the Time Lord appearance, um, we have the Master taken O's appearance mm-hmm. do we assume he regenerated into him or or was it just a bit of a costume change like romana 
Oh, but Destiny of the Daleks, you mean? Yeah. Um, it could be. But yeah, the easiest explanation for that is to think he just regenerated into him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but he did say that he he killed O on his first day to work. Mm-hmm. So do you think the Doctor previously encountered the Master? Or did the Doctor encounter O and the Master's rewritten, rewritten those events? Well, I thought that uh, the Doctor met O when he was a child. Ah, right, okay. Oh, okay. So I think I met him as a child and then uh, he got killed as an adult by the Master and the Master just then took his place. Right, I didn't get that. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, So the whole whole threat uh, of the aliens has been dealt with. The Master has been defeated because the Doctor reveals to the aliens through, through an audio recording that he was going to betray them. Uh, after the aliens had, had massacred the whole of mankind, uh, so they're not too keen on this. So they they pop off back home and then take the master with uh, with them. Um, so he's trapped there. Uh, what uh, the doctor then quickly goes back to sort out the whole thing to do with the flight at the very beginning of the episode, so her friends are able to escape that, and then um, she then visits Gallifrey. And it is comp- it's destroyed. Uh, you know, we see the citadel, and that's destroyed. Um, and she can't, you know, she can't believe it. And there's that whole thing of going, well, you know, she she did this to protect Gallifrey from the time war, and that seems that was completely pointless because something absolutely awful happened here. It's then revealed that it was the master who who did this. Yes. Uh, and again, because I hinted at this, you know, when you asked me, do you th- the way that the, the master in the nineteenth century, the way that he just, you know, he murders three people, is that, um, is that in keeping with his character? Well, given what we find out here, in that he committed mass genocide, he killed all the time lords because he found something out. Yeah. Which is interesting, and of course, the big question is, what has he found out that he finds so abhorrent? He has killed all the Time Lords. Yeah. And it also explains how he's no longer the same person he was when he was Missy, possibly. Yes, it. Uh, yeah, that is a possibility. It, it could be that it's not that case that he's regenerated and he's got fundamentally the same beliefs he used to have in his previous incarnations, but perhaps it was something that literally sent him over the edge. Yeah. yeah, that actually makes sense. Uh, so that 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 could uh, that could explain that. And at the end of episode one of Spyfall, because uh, the master did say to the doctor, "Everything that you believe is a lie," and this is explained in relation to the the, the timeless child. So yeah. that's finally got picked up again because that was first mentioned in the Ghost Monument. And I think when we reviewed that episode, um, we obviously both picked up on that. And we thought that potentially that could be the story that that season's story arc, and we're quite surprised when nothing seemed to happen with regards to that. But finally, it, yeah. it, it it seems to be paying off here. So what the master says in this episode is they lied to us, the founding fathers of Gallifrey. Everything we were told was a lie. We're not who we think you. Uh, we're not who we think you or I. The whole existence of our species built on the lie of the timeless child. Um, just as a, a reminder, so what was said in the ghost monument was um, 
uh, I forgot what they were, s- s- sentient bandages, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, said to the Doctor, we see, we see deeper through, further back, the timeless child. We see what's hidden, even from yourself, the outcast, abandoned and unknown. Um, and it's like a memory that they both share. Yes, it seems to be some sort of... Whether that is a memory or a race memory, I think it was hinted that it was more the latter. Um, a race memory. A, a race memory. Sorry, yes, a race memory. Um, <laughs> that's that's deeply hidden within the the, um, the DNA of, of Time Lords, is interesting. And he did mention the word um, lighted by the founding fathers as well mm-hmm. of Time Lord Society. Yes. So we, there's always a possibility we could see the return of Rassilon. Omega. Yes, uh, that's quite tantalising. So uh, I've just got a question. So this is all very sort of interesting. Um, it adds a potential thread or story arc to the, the series. It's uh, it's it's all very tantalising. Um, do would you want all this explained, or or would you just want clues dropped about what this is all about? It's a tough one to answer. I'd like. If it gets resolved at the end of this series, then it's a bit of a shame that it's over and done with so quick. Mm-hmm. But if it does last another another year or two or three, mm-hmm. then perhaps we've been robbed of other story arcs that we could have had. So in that sense, I, um, I hope it does get partially resolved soon. Yeah, I sort of agree with that. There's a, there's a part of me which quite likes the idea that this is adding another mystery to the Time Lords. Um, and there's a bit of me that would like as uh, much of that um, much of that to remain a mystery because I quite I quite like that. And uh, maybe just have a few clues and maybe allow us the audience to come up with our own theories or, or what have you. Um, but at the same having said that though if it is revealed at the end of this uh, series, I agree with you. It would it would be a shame that it's revealed a lot, uh, perhaps a bit too quickly. But if it is, uh, it better be you know pretty darn good. Um, yeah. And I hope it's not just something that pops up at the end of the series. Then it's resolved cleverly. Yeah, I think uh, if it is if it is uh, dealt with, I think there is potential to not have all the answers provided to to maintain some mystery. Which I think, but, but you know, which is important in relation to the Doctor, uh, and the whole thing to do with the Time Lord Society and what yeah. have you. It is a bit of a kick to the teeth to um, Russell uh, to um, Stephen Moffat, isn't it? <laughs> because of course um, we've had the anniversary um, bringing back Gallifrey, and well, now it was destroyed, um, possibly for the sake of the master's character development and of course for the overarching plot well i always thought it was a bit odd with what stephen moffat did because in the 50th anniversary of the day of the doctor uh, there's that whole thing with how what the doctor does to save gallifrey and then there was this whole thing of going you know is that what the doctor now has to do is find gallifrey because he saved it but he doesn't know exactly where where gallifrey is at that yeah. point i can't remember who said it but someone said well this sets up the next 50 years of the show finding Gallifrey yeah and I thought it'd be I thought that was quite a good way of of, of dealing dealing with that and like maybe once in a while if whoever finding was, a clue along the way or finding something, a yeah. clue and um 
what have you. But then, so Stephen Moffat set up this thing, and then two years later just dealt with it. And I thought, oh, well, what was the point? Um, and it had um, completely the wrong reaction from the Doctor that we wanted. The Doctor was kind of um, blindsided by his loyalty to, loyalty to Clara. And and he didn't he didn't um, experience the the emotion of finding Gallifrey that we hoped for. So it didn't meet expectations. <laughs> no, no, it, it, didn't. it didn't. But um, so the, there's a lot of potential here, and it all seems to be uh, very interesting. So it's it's going to be good where it, you know it um, where it potentially goes. We shall see. I think that the biggest thing to take from this is, of course, that the master has come back. It seems to be. Uh, I really like uh, this interpretation of the character, and they've got, as we said last week, they've got a bloody good actor playing the part. Um, so I'm looking forward to him coming back, whenever that may be. If he ever does, he might pull a John Sim and just not come back until. Nah, they've the given ne- the next gi- era of the show. They give him a new, they give him a new costume. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's hope they don't give him a new face. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, well, it. it uh, uh, I mean, the actor himself—he—he's—he's he's absolutely loving uh, playing the part. Uh, he seems to—if—if if you go on social media on his Instagram and uh, and Twitter, he's because uh, he's getting an awful lot of praise and rightly so for for his performance, and he's he's loving that, and um, he's he's um, over the moon that he is playing such an iconic role. Um, I can't see him bowing out of his of his own volition anytime soon. No, uh, and I think you know, uh, I think a lot of fans, uh, and I think we count ourselves amongst them, who definitely want to see him come back. Yeah, I've always liked the idea of having the master as a regular, mm-hmm. um, and it's never quite um, been the case of him being a full-on regular. We've had this stuff with Missy, but it wasn't um, as extensive as I'd hoped. Because she was locked up for most of series ten. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But um, she she was enough. I think um, in terms of her appearances, she was around enough for her to enjoy, not overstay her welcome, and and uh, enjoy when she did pop up. So I think Stephen Moffat did. I, I think he did quite. I think he bounced that out quite well, personally. But yeah. So how do you think it compares to last week? And what you th- what you thought on the episode? Well, just before we go there, because uh, we have got a couple of responses from people from um, social media. So mm-hmm. on on Twitter, Doctor Who um, the World said that they really enjoyed it. Again, for the bits on top of the Eiffel Tower between the Doctor and the Master, great fun. I really enjoyed all the historical bits, even though it was a bit too close to the Silver Turk. I thought all the scenes of uh, Ravish Gallifrey was fantastic. Um, I think I would uh, agree with that. I think that was um, yeah. Quite good summing up. Uh, and then on, if you just bear with me, and then on Instagram, we have had, I'm really going to balls up the pronunciation of this, so I'm sorry. Uh, Le Ch- Chaton de Desenota. <laughs> Check my French. Anyway, um, they say that it was just, the, they say it was just absolutely amazing. Uh, loved the episode. Um, made them cry with regards to um, the master and everything to do with Gallifrey. Um, 
and was uh, was actually happy that finally we we get uh, the timeless child referenced again. <coughs> yes. To be honest, I totally forgot about the timeless child. Yeah, because I, I think when we when we watched the ghost monument, uh, we we picked up on that, uh, and it was you know, we went, all oh, right, okay, that's 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 quite interesting, and then because nothing was dealt with it was seemed, seemed to be quickly forgotten and it seemed like chris chibnall perhaps wouldn't pick anything but anyway seems to be um it's it's going to become a thing now to answer your question before again uh because of uh the the, the story that's being told here it it does t- um because we got a different director and cinematographer in this episode um there is a different change of of pace and style between episodes one and two um, but like I said before, I didn't find it jarring. Um, I felt that it worked in relation to the actual story, what was you know what was being told, and it it did it really well. Yeah, um, yep. Yeah, difference in tone. I think it ticked all the boxes of what I wanted to be delivered in the story. We got to have the interactions with the Doctor and the Master. Mm-hmm. A few unanswered questions were answered, mm-hmm. but. Um, a few of the plot devices weren't as important as we would have thought um, with regards to the villain. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I think it was a good good conclusion to the first episode. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, so in terms of a score, what would you give it? With part one, I did give it a 10 out of 10. And in retrospect, in retrospect perhaps I, I wouldn't have done that now, just with comparing it to the best of the best of Doctor Who. Ah, okay, yeah. But I think um, I'm going to give this an 8. Oh, okay. Well, that's quite funny because I think we've swapped. So last week I gave episode 1 8 out of 10. And this week I'm giving it 10 out of 10. Okay. Um, so um, so we swap roles a bit. As I said, um, even though I think in relation to um, Yaz, Ryan and Graham... And how they're on the run and it doesn't really, it doesn't really f- function the plot. There is some nice character development there, and it was entertaining. So I didn't. So I think that was arguably the the weakest aspect of the story. But nonetheless, I'd enjoy it. I did enjoy it, and I thought it was quite well done. And I just went along for the ride, and there were absolutely just some absolute remarkable bits in it. As I said, the whole interaction between the uh, the Doctor and the Master was good. The fact that we had Ada Lovelace and Noah Khan working as as uh, companions in the story played brilliantly well, written very well, and it was, um, and it was quite nice. Um, so I, really, I can't find anything to fault personally in this episode. So I think so. Last week, I still stick with uh, with my ranking of giving episode one eight out of ten. Uh, I give this one ten out of ten. So I probably give Spyfall as a whole. Nine out of ten. Yeah, let's meet in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Nine out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now, um, just going back to the trivia question that we asked each other at, uh, earlier on in the podcast. So, just as a reminder, what was your question again? Well, I had asked who did Missy last kill on a plane, but I'd meant to ask who did the master last kill on a plane. <laughs> but um, the question still stands. Well, the thing is, right, okay. when you ask this, I remember the character's name, uh, but now I've completely forgot. Um, I think it was 
Um, she works with the unit as a scientific advisor, and she's like a big fan of the Doctor. You forgot her name. You really liked her. I know. Yeah, she's good. Oh, what's what's her name? Um, what's her name, Rob? Osgood. Osgood. That's it. Jeez. Yeah. Was it Osgood? Yeah. Or was it a Zygon? Oh God. Yeah. Take. <laughs> I, I've been racking my brain and I don't know the answer to your question. <laughs> yes, my, my ridiculously hard question was, Yeah. in the televised series, uh, who do we see as the very first victim of the tissue compression eliminator? Um, so, this was 1971's Terror of the Autons, and it was the technician Googe. Ah. Famous for disliking his wife, including boiled eggs in his packed lunch. <laughs> Poor guy. I know, poor guy. Yeah, it's, it's annoying because I did skim through Terror of the Autons yesterday. Oh, did you? Yeah, I'm so annoyed. <laughs> Obviously skimmed over that bit. You could have had a bonus point if you said that his first name was Albert, uh, because we le- we learn his first name in the novelization. Ah. But he's just Albert Googe. Albert Googe. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Weird name, but there you go. <laughs> So, um, just before we go, as we said, um, if uh, Rob and I are going to have a bit of a further uh, conversation about uh, about things after the end of the credits, so which may potentially spoil things uh, for the rest of the series. So, if you don't want to listen to that, that's after the credits, so um, you can basically stop listening. But just before you go, uh, just as a reminder, we are on obviously social media platforms. So we're on Facebook. You can just search for us at Cloisterbell, but we're at facebook.com forward slash Cloisterbell. We are on Twitter at podcastbell and Instagram cloister underscore bell. See, there's a bit of a theme going on. And our website is www.cloisterbell.co.uk. Please get in contact with us uh, because we love hearing from you and hearing your thoughts and opinions on on Doctor Who and uh, and what have you. So it'd be quite good to hear from you. Yep, and a big thank you for listening. Um, and we would appreciate it if you'd click share on whichever platform you're listening to the podcast on. That would help with <laughs> exposure. <laughs> yeah, it would uh, if you did that, we would you know, we would love you forever. That would just be absolutely tremendous. So th- uh, if you do do that, thank you very much. Well, welcome back. If you've stuck around uh, for after the credits, we assume that you're wanting to hear this uh, this little bit of extra chat that Rob and I will be doing. Um, so do you want to kick this uh, one off, Rob? Yeah, well, I think we'll start at the beginning. Um, Doctor Who returned for a television movie in 1996 starring Paul McGann. During the regeneration in that episode, Frankenstein is on the television. It's a bit of a... Um, kind of an easter egg before anything <laughs> ever happens but then um, when Paul McGann returns to audio um, with Storm Warning the doctor kind of name drops it Mary Shelley and says he once travelled with her and later on Big Finish brought out a compilation of short stories called The Company of Friends and one of them was Mary's Story uh, Aleem are you okay with spoilers? Yeah yeah go ahead Okay in Mary's Story an older 8th Doctor shows up, kind of possessed, 
and this is implied that it's her inspiration for Frankenstein. Oh, right, okay. The Doctor ends the episode with a very, very cool note. He says, remember, Frankenstein was the monster, not the Doctor. <laughs> right, okay. Very cool spin on that. Then the Doctor's going through an era where he's travelling with companions Gemma and Samson, and he leaves them to go off travelling with Mary Shelley, and they have three further audio stories together. The first of which, The Silver Turk, has Mary Shelley meeting the Cybermen. Now there's rumours of an episode including Mary Shelley, including the Cybermen, um, them being her inspiration inspiration for Frankenstein. All right, okay, uh, that's interesting. So, because we know with the with the trailers that the, the Cybermen will be coming back in this series. Yes. Uh, and I think I've probably heard this from you, but we know there are there have been rumours that Mary Shelley, as you said, will be will be popping up. So that's sort of it'd be yeah okay that'll be interesting to see how that pans out. It's a bit of a funny one because as we know. Um, Mary Shelley uh, created Frankenstein through her own imagination, having having been involved in a competition to come up with the best horror or ghost story. Um, and she was obviously inspired by th- things that were taking place around her, and including what was happening in the scientific world and so on. Yes. Um, so yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Because one thing that one thing that I thought I noticed, uh, and I think other people have picked up on it as well, is that these Cybermen, I mean, they appear very, very quickly in the trailer, so you can't really focus on them too much. But it does appear, though, like the 10th planet Mondasian Cybermen, that their hands will be exposed. So this, if this, if this is true, and they do involve Mary Shelley in the New Era... If it does contradict Big Finish, that would be a curious thing to happen, wouldn't it? It would, yes. Would you Would you be bothered by that? Well, it, Stephen Moffat wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have done that. He's also went out of his way to name drop the Big Finish companions in The Night of the Doctor. Yes, that's true. Um, so to retcon an entire era of the Eighth Doctor on audio would be very strange. Obviously there's ways around this. The Doctor could meet her before meeting the Eighth Doctor. There could be a vague sense that she knows her, just like there was a vague sense that the Doctor knew Shakespeare. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's true. And the Doctor could also touch her on the head and wipe her memory. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, that could be, yeah, it could be explained possibly, that way. possibly, yeah. Now earlier on, I mentioned two degrees of separation, and when Mary Shelley come up with her inspiration for Frankenstein, and um, this was at Lake Geneva in Switzerland, yeah, yeah, in the company of Lord Byron, the father of Ada. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I thought the way the episode was going with her involvement, the creation of computers. I thought it was leading towards the Cybermen. Yes, funny enough, there, there was a couple of moments uh, in this episode where, because when we were discussing episode one, I think we both said that we can't imagine the Cybermen actually turning out to be the villains of the story. But yeah, that was one moment. But there was a couple of moments in episode two where I thought, oh, maybe maybe it is the Cybermen. 
which would have made sense and I wouldn't have minded had they popped up but at the same time I'm pleased that they haven't because I think um, uh, I think it would benefit the Cybermen a lot more if they if they appeared on their own as the, as the, as their own threat. Um, with Ada Lovelace, when the Doctor touched her on the head mm-hmm. to wipe her memory, did you have any sense that maybe it didn't work? <laughs> yes, I did a bit. Yeah. Her brain, uh, well, all our brains are a complex computer, mm-hmm. and she could have mentally devised an algorithm to kind of counteract that. Maybe I think that would probably over... <laughs> overdoing it a bit. I thought it would just be simply explaining that you know she pretended. <laughs> Uh, that as soon as the doctor touched, touched her on the head she pretended to fall unconscious and then the doctor just stopped and so therefore it didn't really work because funny enough when the, the doctor says her goodbye goes back into the TARDIS and leaves the camera we don't follow the doctor into the TARDIS we, we stay looking at Ada Lovelace and there was a there was a brief moment when I expected to, expected us to see her open her eyes but yeah yeah, but yeah funny enough I thought it was uh, maybe it didn't work yeah mm-hmm. We'll see how it turns out. I bet Ada never shows up again, and I bet the the Mary Shelley rumours are all false. <laughs> and this was all for nothing. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, yeah. We shall see. Uh, because, Rob, time will tell. 